Hello, and welcome to the Reform Millennials podcast. This show is dedicated to identifying macro waves or trends that millennials can jump on to better invest their time and money. Our goal is to help improve your life and business by being early and right on those trends. Learn more and stay up to date by visiting our website at reformedmillennials.com or join the discussion in our Facebook group, also named Reformed Millennials. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Reform Millennials. On today's episode, we're finally going to do a little bit of a deep dive into cryptocurrencies. On this podcast, we like to do our very best to identify trends. It's safe to say that this is a trend at this point. The reason why we haven't really given into it is because it isn't an area of expertise for myself or Brock. However, I do believe that we found somebody who most certainly would be defined as as an expert in the space. He's been playing around from all edges of cryptocurrencies for multiple years here. And I'm very excited to bring back Kium. Welcome back. Thank you so much for coming on last time. I'm super excited to to dive in today because this is something that I need to um, better understand myself. I don't go one meeting with a client without somebody asking me about cryptocurrencies, where to buy it, what wallet they should use, what the heck Ethereum is, who is Satoshi. So please give a little bit of a background as to like your professional life, but then also your crypto background. Awesome. And thanks for having me, Joel. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, hopefully we can give the listeners some value today. So my name is Kayuma Q, and I am sort of a hybrid of finance and technology. I wanted to be in finance since I was a kid, but also learned how to code along the way. But I went to school for finance. And after that, I worked in asset management and at some of the big banks before one of those companies was acquired. And I finally had the opportunity to go out onto uh, my own venture. And so at that time, I'd start to learn a lot about data science and uh, things like Python and all the different programming elements. And this was in 2017, at which point Ethereum and Bitcoin were really coming off and really starting to take, you know, create a big uh, global kind of hype. What was interesting is for somebody that loves finance and technology, and we can talk about this a bit more, Ethereum was this perfect hybrid because it was a technology that aimed to, you know, decentralize uh, global financial markets and provide this crazy global computer to do all of these really cool things. And I was just so naturally drawn to it. And so I partnered with with the co-founder and we started a company called iComply, which was built to issue private securities or create software to issue private securities on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, the software being able to use the blockchain to make things so much more efficient. I did for a couple of years where I really honed my skills in product management and also learned how to uh, code and develop things in Ethereum before moving on to Ernest & Young. And now I have uh, a different company called ESG Analytics, which is in the fintech space, but applying data science to the environmental, social and governance space. I'm still very actively involved in the in the Ethereum space, talking to a lot of different companies, advising on a few different startups, and it's just uh, it's always an interesting thing, something that's very close to my heart. Yeah, our last episode had a lot to do with uh, your current operating company, something that we, what I do for a living, it's something that I'm interested in. But if I'm going to go back a couple minutes at, or into your, your opening there, you had mentioned the blockchain, and I think that it's important to gain an understanding of what that even means. Because to me, that is where everything kind of starts from when it comes to what's interesting or most interesting about cryptocurrency in general. I mean, to me, when I think blockchain, I think a database or a ledger. Could you expand on that so that people can gain a better understanding of the base layer of where um, you're coming from? Absolutely. I think it's so important to start with the fundamentals. And at the end of the day, a blockchain really is just a database. 
The difference is that it's a database with many actors. And so instead of trusting, let's say, a bank with that database of transactions, where they own it, they verify it, they can do whatever they want to it. With a blockchain, you have a shared database. And so instead of, let's say, us dealing with the bank, we can instead have a database where, let's say, all of the different banks can come or all of the different people can, can come in and we can all read off the same, the same uh, database. And this gets really powerful because it provides the, a common layer for people to work and interact with. And the innovation really uh, is around how these transactions get validated and doing it in a secure way, which what you're trying to avoid is this agency problem where different people can manipulate things. And so that's the, you know, the magic behind cryptocurrency, crypto coming from the term cryptography, which is you know, a whole bunch of, not to go into all the mumble jumble of numbers and hashes and all, that's really the security mechanism that allows us to create and use these shared databases. Thanks. Because even every single time that I kind of I get into this conversation, I find myself having to reconfirm my understanding of it because I, I don't traffic it for multiple reasons, but it's it's by no means something that I'm an expert in. And being able to kind of talk through it and hear someone else talk through it really helps my understanding. And it re it reinvigorates me because it makes me feel as though like this has so many applications to it. Most people, boomers specifically, anybody over the age of 65 really think that this is just something ridiculous. And I think that usually comes from a place of defense where they aren't involved. They felt like they've missed the, I don't know, the wave and they're late. So they're defending their own position. Could you maybe tell us why this isn't necessarily something that's only a story of market cap size? Definitely. And, you know, just, I think people forget that they use cryptography in their day to day in general. Every time we type in a password and we see those little black dots or asterisks that cover it, that's cryptography in action. You enter a password and that is hashed, meaning you don't know what the person actually wrote, but you have a way of verifying that it's the actual password. We use that every single day and we're just applying this at a grander, larger scale. Why it's bigger than just market cap is, you know, if we're looking at something like Bitcoin, which is you know, use as a store of value and people using that as kind of the gateway into the cryptocurrency ecosystem, that maybe is specifically a market cap sort of story. But when you look beyond to things like Ethereum, the story is just completely different. So with Ethereum, that is a blockchain that actually acts as a global computer where we can create applications on it. We can create different contracts and we can actually leverage this to create entirely new financial ecosystems. For example, instead of representing a company's shares on a piece of paper where you have 10,000 authorized shares, instead you have this little computer script which says, okay, the company's name is XYZ and it has uh, 10,000 shares represented by 10,000 tokens. So this is just a totally different thing than just a simple store of value. And to just give you two statistics, if you're looking at Ethereum's market cap, that's the value of Ether, the cryptocurrency. Ether in Ethereum is used to pay for transactions. So if you put something on the Ethereum blockchain, you pay a fee to put it on there, almost like uh, you're paying for every unit of computing power. That's what you use Ether for. And so that's all Ether is. But when you look at Ethereum, you have assets on there now with DeFi and all these NFTs and art and all that kind of stuff. The total value of, let's say, assets that are held on Ethereum is something like 70, 80, 90 billion dollars. And that's outside of the market cap. That's just 
usage of the actual blockchain. So I don't know if that answers your question uh, directly, but the scope is just so much wider than, you know, how much is this cryptocurrency worth? Yeah, and I, I kind of want to give a quote from Naval Ravikant, who I would say was the person who introduced me to the idea in general. I mean, I never met the guy in real life, but I had heard him talk about it back in 2016. And what he said was most interesting for him was the fact of how it is a new way for human beings to organize themselves. Cryptocurrencies is a new way of, it's like a new nation state. It creates a new fundamental ability for us to create and organize. And I thought that was interesting because when it comes to, when you start to think about organizations, you think about countries, you think about these institutions that we are all a part of in one way or another, the most powerful ability of the human race is our ability to create rules inside of these institutions. And that's why he believes crypto, no matter the coin that he's, you're, you apply this to, is so interesting because they create these hard, stable rules. The reason why America and Canada, at least from, in my opinion, is so we've been so successful is because of our, our rule of law. And I think that applies very well to Ethereum and Bitcoin and the fact that you can't really destroy their rules and that allows for us to play within them. Do you tend to agree with his that sentiment? Yeah, I agree with that. It's, I guess it's almost like a two-part thing, right? It's the ability to organize as people into these new systems where we have a way of organizing now where we have all these trusted intermediaries that we deal with and we rely on them to be an authority for our licenses or proof of funds or, you know, to issue some, some sort of legal document. But you have this new way of verification on the blockchain, which allows us to do this at scale globally just with one another, right? So that by itself is just a huge efficiency boost uh, along the way. And then the second is if everyone adopts, let's say, the same blockchain or the same few blockchains, then we're all working on the same language, which we are not today, right? We Everyone operates in totally different silos, different company systems, different software systems, different uh, modes of accounting or whatever. But if we're all working in the same system, and we're all able to enforce this sort of logic to the things that we do. This absolutely just brings a whole new way of working. And in some cases, even creating autonomous ways of decision making. And that's the concept of a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, which is something that runs on the blockchain. And the decisions are hard coded or encoded uh, in there to be making all these decisions without human involvement. So just huge new ways of organizing in a trusted way at scale. And that's really important, the, the trust portion, because in, in a lot of ways, we've started, trust has really deteriorated in our society. And I think that these, these new rules that are inside of these new protocols have allowed for trust to be reborn in a new way. So I'm, I'm, I'm super bullish from that perspective. So I, I want to pull back a little bit because I feel like we're a little bit into the weeds in terms of like philosophy here. But if I'm like, for instance, I sat with a client like literally yesterday who has like a pretty decent amount of money. And he's like, why is it that you would have Bitcoin or Ethereum? And I always think that it's like it, there's a non-zero chance that this becomes a currency or a, a technology that replaces a large portion of my life which means that I need to have at least some exposure to it, which is why I think it makes sense for people to own. But if that's the case, and that's my always my argument for it, the reason why I find that if you're a wealthy person and you don't have it, you're a lunatic because you're really just, you can't afford not to own it. Um, but the second thing, I, I would like you to kind of give some context to, should someone own Bitcoin, should they own Ethereum? And if they should own one or the other, or should they own both? And what's the differences between the two? 
Yeah, you know, I feel like they're completely different. I mean, there's so many different crypt- cryptocurrencies out there, right? And just like asking, should I buy this bond or this stock or this ETF or that fund? They're also different, right? Or should I, should I own a piece of gold? In my viewpoint, I always have seen Bitcoin as that option play on the future of the world reserve currency. We don't know if it gets adopted, but if it does, hey, that's going to be really crazy, right? And that just means that the value that we have today in the world gets put into uh, Bitcoin, right? So, you know, like you said, it'd be crazy not to have that hedge in your portfolio just for some reason. Mm -hmm. With Ethereum, the difference is that, you know, with Bitcoin, we can basically send a Bitcoin from me to Joel uh, and back. That's really the extent of what the system does. And that's by design. But with Ethereum, you have this whole smart contract layer and applications that are on top of it. And so what you're betting on there is that Ethereum gets used as a global computer, which is going to be used to represent all of our bonds and securities and assets and art and all of the, basically the financialization of everything, right? All the way down to representing physical assets and intangible assets. And if that's the case, what you're betting on by buying Ether is that this network becomes very valuable because everybody wants to use it and be on there. And that's what's going to drive up the value of Ethereum. So they're all very different. And I mean, a third way to do all of this stuff is within the Ethereum ecosystem, you have all of the decentralized finance, you have the marketplaces for art and you know different kinds of tokens. So where you want to play in the crypto space is really dependent on you know your comfort level the ease of use or how far in the weeds you want to go but that's you know i feel like bitcoin and ethereum are always the, the easy ways to play it the way that i tell the story is often they're both and this is pretty and a lot of people have been saying this, this isn't my idea like bitcoin and, and ethereum are the rails and the way that they, I separate them in my own brain is that there's a store of value in the religion behind Bitcoin. And that value currently is valued at $950 billion as of today. Ethereum, to me, has more moneyness in that when you are when you go to look at the market cap or the value of the US dollar, it's generally the amount of transactions that are completed. How does how is GDP measured? And if there's a continuance of the expansion of the amount of contracts or the amount of protocols on top of Ethereum, that would suggest that the the ecosystem is growing, which would mean that the total addressable market or the total market cap of everything on top of that platform becomes more and more valuable. So if you believe that the finance ecosystem or the art ecosystem or the whether like the top shot sports ecosystem is going to expand on top of these uh, protocols, well, then that's where you want to be exposed to. And that's the way that I conceptualize it and uh, how I can justify my involvement. And does that make sense to you? Do you think that's like an appropriate way for me to be telling my clients? It is. And you know, I think the, the value or the metric to use on Ethereum, especially in that context, is this term value locked on Ethereum, which is all of the all the representation of assets on Ethereum, which is different from the Ether market cap. The only thing that I'm always not concerned about, but just curious about is, you know, the higher the Ether price is, the more expensive transactions are on the network, mm-hmm. right? And this makes the network slow and, you know, they're doing a whole bunch of things to solve that. It's just interesting to me to think about long-term, you never want an exponential price increase in Ethereum because it just makes the network very uh, hard to use. So 
I don't have a, the right answer for that versus, you know, Bitcoin where you want it to represent like the store of value. So just always to think like what the long-term play is for either there and what's a stable future rate for it. It's interesting because that characteristic wouldn't lend itself to having like that flywheel effect where the more people using it, the more easy or the better the, the actual coin becomes in terms of its value to you, which is bad. But then that also lends itself to being a really good stable coin and that That's the price true. shouldn't go up. Yeah, and you know, there's other ways to play that as well, because now as Ethereum moves from proof of work to proof of stake, which we can cover if you'd like, you know, now what you can do is you can have some Ethereum and if you stake it, because we're not using computers to mine the blockchain anymore, it's going to be just based on people having different values. You can earn something like a 12% interest of just, just for being part of the network. And so these are just different ways to monetize the activity on the different blockchains. Yeah, so you had mentioned a proof of work and proof of stake. I think it would be appropriate for you to kind of talk that through now because it is intrinsically important to the blockchain itself and why it's so um, secure in a sense. And it tells the story of decentralization. Yeah, and I think it's even it's especially timely now where Ethereum is going. So proof of work uh, versus proof of stake. So proof of work is, you know, with each blockchain transaction, what happens is, let's say me and Joel make a transaction. A blockchain is made of all of these different nodes who each hold a copy of the blockchain, right? And that's how it's a shared ledger because we can say, hey, for the Bitcoin blockchain, here are, the 10, here are 10 nodes, each of them has a copy. And when a new transaction gets done, all of these different nodes, they'll compete programmatically to be the person that says, hey, this is a legit transaction. And then everyone else in the ledger or in the nodes has to say, uh, this is correct. And so proof of work, this is done with uh, computers. And you have all of these machines that are trying to solve this cryptographic puzzle to say this transaction is legit. And it's just a it's just a random sort of generation of this, which is what makes it super secure. And so with proof of work, you actually have all of these people who are running computers 24-7 to verify that transaction. It uses a lot of energy, a lot of power, and it's very uh, physically demanding. So it actually requires hard infrastructure to be a part of that node. So... Proof of stake, on the other hand, is saying, okay, we don't need all of this physical infrastructure to secure the network. Because you can imagine, you know, the more no participants you have on a network, the more secure it is, because you have more people confirming the transactions and things like that. So Bitcoin automatically creates some sort of barrier for people to come in and be part of the network. So, and Bitcoin's proof of work. With proof of stake, we say, okay, what if we just say that we have all of these different nodes, but instead of them providing all this computer infrastructure, let's say each person had you know, five tokens. What they're going to do is they're all going to deposit five tokens, right? And as a transaction comes through, we're going to get one of these nodes to verify this. We'll pick it randomly and we'll get every other person in the network to verify it. And instead of the computing power, what happens is that if somebody is a malicious actor or a bad actor in this network, then we can slash them meaning we can take back that $5 or find them. You know, that's concepts from, that we know from the world today. And so Ethereum today has traditionally been proof of work, but they've been on a big ramp up to release the new version, which is proof of stake. And they've done an amazing job of it and they're almost, almost there. And what this now enables is you go from all the physical infrastructure that's needed to having many more people just being able to deposit some ether and be part of the network. 
And this makes the network faster, makes it less reliant on physical infrastructure, and creates these new opportunities where you can get the rewards from verifying a transaction just by putting an instant ether uh, up there. And so the idea is that this is, you know, can get to a point where you can make things so much faster and easier because you're not reliant on the physical uh, infrastructure. And I remember early days of Ethereum, it was like 30 transactions per second. And with this kind of technology, you're now starting to get into like the Visa sort of transaction limits on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and for context, like I, from my understanding, Bitcoin can only complete like 14 transactions per second. And I would guess that Visa's transactions are in the hundreds of thousands per second. And Something like that. Yeah. and I think not hundreds of thousands, but definitely like thousands, uh, okay. which, which is quite a lot. Yeah. And if you aren't able to produce that, the, the reality of it even ever becoming a mode of, of currency or transaction is is just unlikely, right? Exactly, so, right? Like when we're all used to the speed of light, right? When we tap our credit cards and that's what we have to get to to get these to be adopted in that way. And if you yeah. get that plus the security, you know, that's where I think the world is looking to for this to take over. Yeah, so I kind of want to um, reverse out of the space of creating new assets and digital assets to the businesses that help build out this infrastructure. So in my space, I'm super interested in the current S1 of, of Coinbase on my last podcast. I talked about it a little bit and it's going out at like $100 billion valuation. That's banana land to me, but it's kind of justified with the revenues that they're doing. They're they're making money and yeah. I don't see the at least the amount of transactions that they're going to be providing infrastructure for stopping so is this going to continue to occur is there any sort of like it's kind of how do i put this it's they're being hypocritical in raising us dollars to build out an infrastructure that is supposed to replace it do you have any opinions on some of the companies that are looking to go public and do you see this as an investable space for those that um maybe are scared of getting involved so when you say scared of getting involved what do you mean like going and buying a Bitcoin, like they just, it's so complicated to them that they don't want to do that. They'd rather just either go the route of owning Bitcoin via an ETF vehicle, which is like something that you can hold inside of your RSP, or they'd rather own a company that is market cap is based on the the reality of the space growing. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, right? I mean, I think Coinbase, like you said, they make a ton of money. If you've ever had to purchase anything on Coinbase, you've seen what the spreads are like. And that's just for the retail side. There's a whole institutional side of their business, which is massive, right? So, you know, I think they're justified with going for it. And I'm sure, I mean, they have a whole stack of early stage venture capitalists on there. So I'm sure they've been pushing for an exit as well, uh, which is also something to take take into account. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be more companies that go that go public. There's definitely uh, some that have gone that have gone public for you know things like cryptocurrency mining and things like that. I think there's a lot more infrastructure that's coming along with actually helping companies run these blockchains and create all these financial applications on top of them. So I don't think we'll see a shortage of companies that start to take advantage of the space and to do this going forward. Right? There's different wallets and you know p- payment providers and all of the the different components that make up the space. And there's so many of these companies that I think will, some will go public, some will, you know, be sustainable companies. But for the individual investor, that's always two ways to play it, right? You can buy directly or you can find a a way to get that exposure, but hedged with actual company revenues. Yeah. I I mean, this is by no means a recommendation to go and buy these things. I don't. 
I mean, Christ, there's no way that I think that, especially at the current frothy valuations that these businesses are getting, like, for instance, Coinbase is going to be valued at a larger uh, market cap than Facebook was when it went public. <laughs> That's crazy. It, it's absolutely banana land. And I mean, is it justified? Maybe. I'm not here to argue one way or the other, but it's just been very interesting. So for somebody who is perhaps interested in maybe buying a couple thousand bucks worth of crypto, like what... You probably have a little bit of experience in terms of opening different wallets, being involved in a few different exchanges. What are you seeing from a trend perspective? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, this is not an endorsement by me. This is just my favorite app is an app called Celsius, which is made by Alex uh, Machinsky, who's the founder of like voice over uh, internet. And Celsius is really cool because it has a really cool user interface and it's from a custodian point of view. So your funds are secure. And with it, you know, the downside is you don't own your own keys, which depending on your decentralization ethos is a good or, or bad thing. But the beauty about it is that you can actually purchase your crypto on there or transfer it from somewhere else and get paid interest on your cryptocurrency. So for example, if I'm holding Bitcoin in there every week, I would get paid. So they have like a 6% per annum rate on your Bitcoin right now, something like five on Ether. And so you get that paid weekly in that cryptocurrency. So it's like, almost like a no-brainer if you're going to buy something and you're going to hold it then you might as well hold it and get paid interest in it over time right and that's obviously better interest than we get on our assets today depending on where you are you might not be able to buy directly through the app so coinbase is usually you know a nice easy option maybe higher spreads but fast secure and kind of just makes the most sense yeah i, I always struggle with recommendations in that space because i just don't think I mean, the everything moves so quickly and something good can go bad so fast. And I don't like to attach my reputation to a freaking cryptocurrency wallet. But nonetheless, I mean, having some experience, like I've used Argent Wallet and there's a few other places that I've experienced, but I, there's so many horror stories that I've heard from friends. So I do want to have a, a little disclaimer here. If you are listening to some sort of pitch on a fund to own these things, don't do it. There's so many very legitimate institutions out there that you could get involved with and, and go about doing it yourself that you shouldn't be trusting some family member to go and buy these things for you because it is complicated and, and it makes sense for you to do your own research before doing a lot of this. So I, I wanted to ask you, obviously, the last three weeks has been pretty intense from an NFT perspective. And you had mentioned before we had jumped on this call that you had started a new project in the NFT art space. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe not necessarily your project if it's not um, ready to be talked about, but just what goes into creating an NFT yeah, I can't release too many details on the new project, just that it's uh, it's art-based from an NFT angle and looking to kind of work within the IP space in there and just making sure things are protected for all the creators. But yeah, you know what? There's the concept of fungible and non-fungible tokens. And to give you a background on what that is, if, if we say, okay, if we have like a, a dollar bill, a dollar or let's say $100 bill. A $100 bill is a fungible asset, meaning that we can break it down into its different components. We can break that down into nickels and dimes and dollars, and you know we can split $100 eight different ways, 10 different ways, et cetera, et cetera. But if instead of handing you a $100 bill, I handed you a Banksy drawing or a private island, and I was like, hey, Joel, you want to split this? We can't do it, right? <laughs> that's the concept of a non-fungible asset. And so that's really where the two different things take place. And so on Ethereum, 
something like shares in a company, that's a fungible asset. There's one share class and multiple shares under there, which you can represent on a smart contract. And the big innovation when CryptoKitties came around was the concept of uh, a token or smart contract that represents a non-fungible asset. So now we can represent things like art and unique assets on there. The way they did it was coming up with almost like a digital version, you know, Beanie Babies sort of mentality where you had all of these different cats and some were rare, some were common, but each single cat was very, was, was unique. And you could only transfer one cat between another person, but it was your cat. Like there was not another cat like that. And so that has evolved now into, that was like the initial concept. Uh, And just like how the initial concept of Ethereum tokens has now led to actual shares being traded on Ethereum and bonds and stocks being issued. Now we're getting to the point where you're having big institutions like the NBA and you know different artists actually selling their art on Ethereum and representing them digitally. It's also created a new ecosystem for digitally native art. I think there was like the Nyan Cat example, which was you know a gift that sold for six hundred thousand dollars as a unique art piece. And I think we just need to look at the real world of you know, baseball cards and memorabilia to realize that it's just inherent in our human nature, right? These are things that we are so used to. It's just done in a different way. If anyone's ever played some of the new uh, sports games as well, you'll know that kids will pay for, you know, packs of sports players to put in their fantasy team. So this is just where the concept, uh, and we've probably all done it, right? I know I've done that on FIFA myself. So this is just where the concept comes in. And I think it's, uh, we're at a watershed moment where art and NFTs non-fungible tokens are now coming into like the limelight as a real use case that's tradable, that has real assets on there and really a strong value inherent in it. Yeah, I find that most technology takes off when the hardware is there to take it to the next level. And in a lot of ways, we do have it right now. In the same way that I think that Instagram wasn't necessarily the first photo app it was um, perfectly timed with the the advancement of the iPhone, the iPhone 4, and that it's the camera on the phone was good enough, and the the image that it produced was the perfect size for an app to to start out. And I think that there's officially four or five. I guess that we'd be what eleven years into, ten years into the Bitcoin's existence to where one, there's enough trust inside of these systems, and then two, there being the legitimate hardware technology to take this to the next level, where I think that a lot there's a lot of possibility around the signaling of status with these NFTs inside of the metaverse. If you're somebody who is spending a lot of time on Fortnite, a lot of what matters on that, that inside the game is what you wear and uh, what your avatar is doing. So there's going to be uh, a lot of room for creativity in creating assets on, inside of these new worlds that a lot or increasingly people are participating in. And I think that to me is very exciting. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like there's been so many examples of digital scarcity to make the case for all of this. You know what I mean? In so many different shapes and forms, like Fortnite is a great example that I think is just running in parallel to this whole trend. Yeah. And right now there's so much money chasing this or trying to create this that the upside potential is quite huge. And many people don't recognize this, but the video game industry itself is two times the size of the movie industry and the music industry combined from a from like an actual commerce per- perspective on an annual wow. basis. That's crazy. And it is. And it's only growing. 
from like the from the amount of money that's spent on not necessarily advertising, but money spent inside of games as a percentage of the amount of time that human beings are spending inside of it. It's like a fraction of what people are spending on sports gambling. And, and, when, and when you add the esports and all of the all of that stuff that's going around, it's just next level, right? There's a reason all that money is chasing it. Yeah. And people are spending hours and hours a day inside of these worlds. It's not a matter of whether or not it's real. It doesn't have to be. The fact is that their time is spent there. And that is the new real estate in a sense. It's been recreated in a new place. I know you don't think, or people will always argue, well, it's not tangible, it's not real. There's no real estate value here. There's no, I can't touch it or feel it or see it. Well, I mean, but you can, you're just, you're rejecting it because you haven't experienced what other people have. So I think that if you, if anybody's listening to this, my call to action here is to expand your mind. It's not to buy things necessarily so much as it is to recognize when things have changed and that the world is different. It's the era of uh, tangible and tangible, I suppose. Yeah, you know what? Even when you look at the market cap of companies inside the S&P 500, I think back in the 80s or whatever, 80% of the book value was tangible assets. And now if you look at the, the market cap of, let's say, Apple, it's only 20% of That's its hard. value. Those charts are crazy. And if you see like yeah, exactly the percentage of intangible assets on those companies, it just speaks volumes to just what's happening, right? Yeah, I think you shouldn't anchor yourself to the past when you're thinking of what the future is going to be. And that's, I mean, this is why I was so excited to talk to you because you helped paint, at least in a lot of areas in which I just didn't have enough context. And I am guarantee you in three months, there's going to be something else that's created that I'm going to need your some clarification. I'm going to want to bring it back on. But is there anything else that you think that we missed that you think is important to talk about? No, the only thing I want to just mention, just going back to like, what is a blockchain initially is just that concept. People will see the words and all these crazy, you know, numbers on the screen called a hash, which I think gets really confusing for people. But, you know, when you think about what it is, it's really just taking a piece of information, like, because the actual information is not typically stored on the blockchain. It's really just a, a verification of that information. And if you take a Word document and, you know, quote unquote, hash it, you get like this string of letters that represents a unique signature of that document. If you change just a comma of that document, you get something entirely different. And that would nullify all the verification and the whole blockchain, all of that. So, uh, you know, if people just read up and find ways to conceptualize how this stuff gets done because it can be confusing at first but when you put it together in like ways that make that you understand i think it it's what can encourage people to have real trust in the system and understand how we can use computers to address this human issue but otherwise yeah it's you know great to be on here and looking forward to more conversations it's a really cool space and i think we're just at the cusp of a new change in the world as we see it yeah i want people to realize that yeah i get it you feel like you've missed the boat on Bitcoin because it's 52,000 US dollars right now. But like anything, if you were investing in technology in 1990s, from 1996 to 2000, you probably thought that you had missed everything. But in reality, it's just starting. And there's a lot of different nuance in which you can probably, you could find value in alpha. Totally. From, from an investment perspective. So just get creative, learn. Yeah. And, and I mean, on the price thing, you know, right now people will say they missed the price on Bitcoin. I'm not going to comment about the price specifically. All I'll say is that if we're being honest with ourselves of where we think Bitcoin can go, the fact that we still measure Bitcoin in US dollars today, that speaks volume to where the world is at, right? Mm -hmm. Because if Bitcoin was to be where it, what it's meant for, you know, a, a denomination of Bitcoin like 0 
0.0001 Bitcoin is known as a Satoshi. When we see a can of Coke that costs three sats, which is the short form, I mean, that's a totally different way of human thinking that we haven't got to yet. I think we've just seen, you know, early adoption and now we're seeing all the ETFs and investment funds that are holding Bitcoin. And then, you know, what we still haven't seen yet is real worldwide adopted usage and maybe a small country or two specifically only using Bitcoin. There is very interesting things that uh, that can happen over the next uh, short, medium, long term. Yeah, and I'm just going to cap it off with something that you can maybe have a relative comparable. Gold's market cap is 10 trillion. Currently, we have about a 950 billion dollar market cap on 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 Bitcoin. So, and if you're an investor, you don't have to buy an entire Bitcoin. You can just buy a piece of it. You can buy a couple bucks. It's a couple sats. Exactly, a couple sats. The day that I buy something in a sat, I'm just going to freak out. Right. It was uh, really great talking again. Thank you so much for your time. I recognize you're a busy guy and congratulations on the new puppy. And I hope to chat soon in the future. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want additional context or interested in any of the people or links we mentioned, head over to our website. It's reformedmillennials.com. It's going to have all of the links there for you, as well as the show notes and all the past episodes. While you're on the site, make sure you subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It's got a summary of all the most popular stories and trends from the previous week. By the way, this should be common sense, but this podcast and our website are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Joel does work for Gold Investment Management and all opinions expressed by him, myself, or any podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of GIM. Clients of Gold Investment Management may actually hold positions discussed in this podcast. Have a good day, everyone.